Chapter 31, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 31, The Art of Money-Getting, Part 2. The foundation of success in life is good health. That is the substratum of fortune. It is also the basis of happiness. A person cannot accumulate a fortune very well when he is sick. He has no ambition, no incentive, no force. Of course, there are those who have bad health and cannot help it. You cannot expect that such persons can accumulate wealth. But there are a great many in poor health who need not be so. If, then, sound health is the foundation of success and happiness in life, how important it is that we should study the laws of health, which is but another expression for the laws of nature. The closer we keep to the laws of nature, the nearer we are to good health, and yet how many persons there are who pay no attention to natural laws, but absolutely transgress them, even against their own natural inclination. We ought to know that the sin of ignorance is never winked at in regard to violation of nature's laws. Their infraction always brings the penalty. A child may thrust its finger into the flame without knowing it will burn, and so suffers. Repentance will not even stop the smart. Many of our ancestors knew very little about the principle of ventilation. They did not know much about oxygen, whatever other gin they might have been acquainted with, and consequently, they built their houses with little seven-by-nine-feet bedrooms, and these good old pious Puritans would lock themselves up in one of these cells, say their prayers, and go to bed. In the morning they would devoutly return thanks for the preservation of their lives during the night, and nobody had better reason to be thankful. Probably some big crack in the window, or in the door, let in a little fresh air, and thus saved them. Many persons knowingly violate the laws of nature against their better impulses, for the sake of fashion. For instance, there is one thing that nothing living except a vile worm ever naturally loved, and that is tobacco. Yet how many persons there are who deliberately train an unnatural appetite and overcome this implanted aversion for tobacco to such a degree that they get to love it. They have got hold of a poisonous, filthy weed, or rather that takes a firm hold of them. Here are married men who run about spitting tobacco juice on the carpet and floors, and sometimes even upon their wives besides. They do not kick their wives out of doors like drunken men, but their wives, I have no doubt, often wish they were outside of the house. Another perilous feature is that this artificial appetite, like jealousy, grows by what it feeds on. When you love that which is unnatural, a stronger appetite is created for the hurtful thing than the natural desire for what is harmless. There is an old proverb which says, Habit is second nature. But an artificial habit is stronger than nature. Take, for instance, an old tobacco chewer. His love for the quid is stronger than his love for any particular kind of food. He can give up roast beef easier than give up the weed. Young lads regret that they are not men. They would like to go to bed boys and wake up men. And to accomplish this, they copy the bad habits of their seniors. Little Tommy and Johnny 
see their fathers or uncles smoke a pipe, and they say, If I could only do that, I would be a man too. Uncle John has gone out and left his pipe of tobacco. Let us try it. They take a match and light it, and then puff away. We will learn to smoke. Do you like it, Johnny? That lad dolefully replies, Not very much. It tastes bitter. By and by he grows pale, but he persists, and he soon offers up a sacrifice on the altar of fashion. But the boys stick to it and persevere, until at last they conquer their natural appetites and become the victims of acquired tastes. I speak by the book, for I have noticed its effects on myself, having gone so far as to smoke ten or fifteen cigars a day, although I have not used the weed during the last fourteen years, and never shall again. The more a man smokes, the more he craves smoking. The last cigar smoked simply excites the desire for another, and so on, incessantly. Take the tobacco chewer. In the morning, when he gets up, he puts a quid in his mouth and he keeps it there all day, never taking it out except to exchange it for a fresh one, or when he is going to eat. Oh, yes, at intervals during the day and evening, many a chewer takes out the quid and holds it in his hand long enough to take a drink, and then pop it goes back again. This simply proves that the appetite for rum is stronger than that for tobacco. When the tobacco chewer goes to your country seat and you show him your grapery and fruit house and the beauties of your garden, when you offer him some fresh ripe fruit and say, My friend, I've got here the most delicious apples and pears and peaches and apricots. I've imported them from Spain, France, Italy. Just see those luscious grapes. There's nothing more delicious nor more healthy than ripe fruit. So help yourself. I want to see you delight yourself with these things. He will roll the dear quid under his tongue and answer, No, I thank you. I've got tobacco in my mouth. His palate has become narcotized by the noxious weed, and he has lost in a great measure the delicate and enviable taste for fruits. This shows what expensive, useless, and injurious habits men will get into. I speak from experience. I have smoked until I trembled like an aspen leaf. The blood rushed to my head, and I had a palpitation of the heart, which I thought was a heart disease, till I was almost killed with fright. When I consulted my physician, he said, Break off tobacco using. I was not only injuring my health and spending a great deal of money, but I was setting a bad example. I obeyed his counsel. No young man in the world ever looked so beautiful, as he thought he did, behind a fifteen-cent cigar or meerschaum. These remarks apply with a tenfold force to the use of intoxicating drinks. To make money requires a clear brain. A man has got to see that two and two make four. He must lay all his plans with reflection and forethought and closely examine all the details and the ins and outs of business, as no man can succeed in business unless he has a brain to enable him to lay his plans and reason to guide him in their execution. So, no matter how bountifully a man may be blessed with intelligence, if the brain is muddled and his judgment warped by intoxicating drinks, it is impossible for him to carry on business successfully. How many good opportunities have passed never to return while a man was sipping a social beverage with his friend? 
How many foolish bargains have been made under the influence of the Nervine, which temporarily makes its victim think he is rich? How many important chances have been put off until tomorrow, and then forever, because the wine cup has thrown the system into a state of lassitude, neutralizing the energy so essential to success in business? Verily, wine is a mocker. The use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage is as much an infatuation as is the smoking of opium by the Chinese, and the former is quite as destructive to the success of the businessman as the latter. It is an unmitigated evil, utterly indefensible in the light of philosophy, religion, or good sense. It is the parent of nearly every other evil in our country. Don't mistake your vocation. The safest plan and the one most sure of success for the young man starting in life is to select the vocation which is most congenial to his tastes. Parents and guardians are often quite too negligent in regard to this. It is very common for a father to say, for example, I have five boys. I will make Billy a clergyman, John a lawyer, Tom a doctor, and Dick a farmer. He then goes into town and looks about to see what he will do with Sammy. He returns home and says, Sammy, I see watchmaking is a nice genteel business. I think I will make you a goldsmith. He does this regardless of Sam's natural inclinations or genius. We are all no doubt born for a wise purpose. There is as much diversity in our brains as in our countenances. Some are born natural mechanics, while others have a great aversion to machinery. Let a dozen boys of ten years get together, and you will soon observe two or three are whittling out some ingenious device, working with locks or complicated machinery. When they were but five years old, their father could find no toy to please them like a puzzle. They are naturally mechanics, but the other eight or nine boys have different aptitudes. I belong to the latter class. I never had the slightest love for mechanism. On the contrary, I have a sort of abhorrence for complicated machinery. I never had ingenuity enough to whittle a cider tap so it would not leak. I never could make a pen that I could write with, or understand the principle of a steam engine. If a man was to take such a boy as I was and attempt to make a watchmaker of him, the boy might, after an apprenticeship of five or seven years, be able to take apart and put together a watch, but all through life he would be working uphill and seizing every excuse for leaving his work and idling away his time. Watchmaking is repulsive to him. Unless a man enters upon the vocation intended for him by nature and best suited to his particular genius, he cannot succeed. I am glad to believe that the majority of persons do find the right vocation, yet we see many who have mistaken their calling, from the blacksmith up or down to the clergyman. You will see, for instance, that extraordinary linguist, the learned blacksmith, who ought to have been a teacher of languages. And you may have seen lawyers, doctors, and clergymen who were better fitted by nature for the anvil or the lapstone. Select the right location. After securing the right vocation, you must be careful to select the proper location. You may have been cut out for a hotel keeper, and they say it requires a genius to know how to keep a hotel. You might conduct a hotel like clockwork and provide satisfactorily for 500 guests every day. Yet, if you should locate your house in a small village where there is no railroad communication or public travel, 
the location would be your ruin. It is equally important that you do not commence business where there are already enough to meet all demands in the same occupation. I remember a case which illustrates this subject. When I was in London in 1858, I was passing through Holborn with an English friend and came to the penny shows. They had immense cartoons outside, portraying the wonderful curiosities to be seen, all for a penny. Being a little in the show line myself, I said, let us go in here. We soon found ourselves in the presence of the illustrious showman, and he proved to be the sharpest man in that line I'd ever met. He told us some extraordinary stories in reference to his bearded ladies, his albinos, and his armadillos, which we could hardly believe, but thought it better to believe it than to look after the proof. He finally begged to call our attention to some wax statuary, and showed us a lot of the dirtiest and filthiest wax figures imaginable. They looked as if they had not seen water since the deluge. "'What is there so wonderful about your statuary?' I asked. "'I beg you not speak so satirically,' he replied. "'Sir, these are not Madame Tussaud's wax figures, all covered with gilt and tinsel and imitation diamonds, and copied from engravings and photographs. Mine, sir, were taken from life.' Whenever you look upon one of those figures, you may consider that you are looking upon the living individual. Glancing casually at them, I saw one labeled Henry VIII, and, feeling a little curious upon seeing that it looked like Calvin Edson, the living skeleton, I said, Do you call that Henry VIII? He replied, Certainly, sir. It was taken from life at Hampton Court by special order of His Majesty on just such a day. He would have given the hour of the day if I had insisted. I said, Everybody knows that Henry VIII was a great stout old king, and that figure is lean and lank. What do you say to that? Why, he replied, You would be lean and lank yourself if you sat there as long as he has. There is no resisting such arguments. I said to my English friend, Let us go out. Do not tell him who I am. I show the white feather. He beats me. He followed us to the door, and seeing the rabble in the street, he called out, Ladies and gentlemen, I beg to draw your attention to the respectable character of my visitors, pointing to us as we walked away. I called upon him a couple of days afterwards. I told him who I was, and said, My friend, you are an excellent showman, but you have selected a bad location. He replied, This is true, sir. I feel that all my talents are thrown away. But what can I do? You can go to America, I replied. You can give full play to your faculties over there. You will find plenty of elbow room in America. I will engage you for two years. After that, you will be able to go on your own account. He accepted my offer and remained two years in my New York Museum. He then went to New Orleans and carried on a traveling show business during the summer. Today, he is worth $60,000 simply because he selected the right vocation and also secured the proper location. The old proverb says, Three removes are as bad as a fire, but when a man is in the fire, it matters but little how soon or how often he removes. Avoid Debt Young men starting in life should avoid running into debt. There is scarcely anything that drags a person down like debt. It is a slavish position to get in. Yet we find many a young man hardly out of his teens running in debt. He meets a chum and says, look at this, I have got trusted for a new suit of clothes. 
He seems to look upon the clothes as so much given to him. Well, it frequently is so, but if he succeeds in paying and then gets trusted again, he is adopting a habit which will keep him in poverty through life. Debt robs a man of his self-respect and makes him almost despise himself, grunting and groaning and working for what he has eaten up or worn out, and now when he is called upon to pay up, he has nothing to show for his money. This is properly termed working for a dead horse. I do not speak of merchants buying and selling on credit, or of those who buy on credit in order to turn the purchase to a profit. The old Quaker said to his farmer's son, John, never get trusted, but if thee gets trusted for anything, let it be for manure, because that will help thee pay it back again. Mr. Beecher advised young men to get in debt, if they could, to a small amount in the purchase of land in the country districts. If a young man, he says, will only get in debt for some land and then get married, these two things will keep him straight, or nothing will. This may be safe to a limited extent, but getting in debt for what you eat and drink and wear is to be avoided. Some families have a foolish habit of getting credit at the stores and thus frequently purchase many things which might have been dispensed with. It is all very well to say, I have got trusted for sixty days, and if I don't have the money, the creditor will think nothing about it. There is no class of people in the world who have such good memories as creditors. When the sixty days run out, you will have to pay. And if you do not pay, you will break your promise and probably resort to a falsehood. You may make some excuse or get in debt elsewhere to pay it, but that only involves you the deeper. A good-looking, lazy young fellow was the apprentice boy Horatio. His employer said, Horatio, did you ever see a snail? I think I have, he drawled out. You must have met him, then, for I am sure you never overtook one, said the boss. Your creditor will meet you or overtake you and say, Now, my young friend, you agreed to pay me. You have not done it. You must give me your note. You give the note on interest, and it commences working against you. It is a dead horse. The creditor goes to bed at night and wakes up in the morning better off than when he retired to bed because his interest has increased during the night. But you grow poorer while you are sleeping, for the interest is accumulating against you. Money is in some respects like fire. It is a very excellent servant, but a terrible master. When you have it mastering you... When interest is constantly piling up against you, it will keep you down in the worst kind of slavery. But let money work for you, and you have the most devoted servant in the world. It is no I servant. There is nothing animate or inanimate that will work so faithfully as money when placed at interest and well secured. It works night and day, and in wet or dry weather. I was born in the blue law state of Connecticut where the old Puritans had laws so rigid that it was said, they find a man for kissing his wife on Sunday. Yet these rich old Puritans would have thousands of dollars at interest, and on Saturday night would be worth a certain amount. On Sunday they would go to church and perform all the duties of a Christian. On waking up on Monday morning they would find themselves considerably richer than the Saturday night previous simply because their money placed at interest had worked faithfully for them all day Sunday, according to law. Do not let it work against you. If you do, there is no chance for success in life so far as money is concerned. 
John Randolph, the eccentric Virginian, once exclaimed in Congress, Mr. Speaker, I have discovered the philosopher's stone. Pay as you go. This is indeed nearer to the philosopher's stone than any alchemist has ever yet arrived. End of chapter 31. Part 2. Recording by Jared Hind, Springfield, Missouri.